Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Show Me History. I'm your host, Amy Blankenship. Since this is the first episode, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. I'm a native St. Louisan, born and raised, and I've always been interested in history and kind of grew up like a tourist in my own town. We were always going to museums and local attractions throughout the metro area. And because this is a St. Louis podcast, I will let you know, I went to Melville High School in South County. It's a, a St. Louis thing. We always have to know where people went to high school so we can make our assumptions and judgments about them. And while I plan to cover a variety of topics from all eras of St. Louis history, it made sense to me to start at the beginning, the founding of St. Louis. Before we get any further, I'd like to make a little disclaimer about the pronunciation of all the French names that will be in today's episode. I apologize for butchering them. I'm from St. Louis, and we have a special way of taking words from foreign languages and making them their own. So I'm going to pronounce things the way that I'm familiar with and the way that I've heard them. Before we get to Pierre Laclede and August Chodo sailing up the Mississippi River, let's cover a little bit about the background of the area and the world events at the time. The area of St. Louis in Missouri was first settled by the Mississippian Native Americans. Um, they built the burial mounds and ceremonial mounds that we're used to seeing throughout the area, especially over on the Illinois side. But their culture died out sometime in the 14th century. At the time of the city's founding, the Osage tribe lived in the region. The area was first recorded by French explorers Louis Joliet and Jacques Marquette in 1673. They explored the Mississippi River from the Great Lakes down to the Gulf of Mexico. And then in 1678, La Salle claimed the area for France and referred to it as the Louisiana Territory. Also, this French explorer explored the area from the mouth of the Illinois River to the Mississippi River and down to the Gulf of Mexico. He named it after King Louis XIV, who was King of France at the time. So what is the Louisiana Territory? It's essentially the middle of the country. So it's the Rocky Mountains to the Appalachian Mountains, and then the Great Lakes down to the Gulf of Mexico. Most of the European settlement of the area was first on the east bank of the Mississippi River in the 1690s and the early 1700s. The French created a chain of forts along the Mississippi River. They also created villages. Um, this included New Orleans, and then more locally, uh, Kaskaskia, Fort de Chartes. And then in the 1730s, migrants from the East Bank went over to the West Bank of the Mississippi and founded the village of St. Genevieve. And St. Genevieve is the first permanent settlement in Missouri. So let's talk about what is going on in the world at the time of the St. Louis founding. Uh, we are at the end of the Seven Years' War, also known as the French and Indian War. And it ended with the Treaty of Paris in 1763. It was a global conflict, mainly between France and Great Britain. It was a war over land claims in North America that caused countries all over the world to pledge allegiance with either France or Great Britain. But what does this mean for St. Louis? This meant that French lands east of the Mississippi now belonged to Great Britain. The Treaty of Fontainebleau in 1763 ceded all French land west of the Mississippi River to Spain. News of this treaty was not made public until 1764, and news traveled very slowly. Spain did not officially take possession of Louisiana territory until 1769. France and Spain were allies at the time. Um, both of the kings belonged to the Bourbon family. So let's travel to New Orleans for a little bit. 
This city was founded in 1718 and was the French capital in North America. And this is really where our story starts. So Pierre Laclede immigrated to New Orleans in 1755. He was born to a prominent family in the French town of Béarn, located in the Pyrenees. And it said that he was an attractive man that moved with grace. The reason for his move to New Orleans is not entirely clear. Some historians say it was to make money in the New World, and others believed it was because he was the second son of the family and believed he wouldn't have much of a life in France. But he did excel in his life in New Orleans. He became a successful wholesale merchant and a member of the militia, and he was part of the elite society. And this is where he met Maria Therese Chodo. She was actually married to another man. His name was René Auguste Chateau, but he abandoned the family and returned to France. So she could not legally divorce her husband due to Catholic law at the time. So essentially, Marie Chodeau and Laclede had a common-law marriage that lasted until Laclede's death in 1778. Together, they had four children, uh, Jean-Pierre, Marie Pelagie, Marie-Louise, and Victory. And all of Laclede's children with Marie were baptized in René Chodeau's name. Marie Chodeau is the mother of August Chodeau. So Laclede basically became a de facto stepfather to August at this time. And also during Laclede's time in New Orleans, he met up with a man named Gilbert Antoine de Maxent. De Maxent was born in Lorraine, France, and migrated to New Orleans in 1747. He was a merchant and regimental commander of the Louisiana militia, and together they formed a business called Maxent and Laclede and Company. At this time, the governor of the Louisiana Tory was Jean-Jacques de Abadie, and he was looking for a way to generate money. So the end of the Seven Years' War left France with empty coffers, and as a result, the French really didn't have money to support themselves, let alone any subsidiaries. So the Louisiana Territory was looking for a way to generate money and funds for the area. And an idea was formed to create a fur trading post 1,200 miles north along the western side of the Mississippi River, near the mouth of the Missouri River. A fur trade would generate money and stimulate trade, and the furs available in the northern Louisiana Territory were much better than down in the south. So Maxent was issued a trade monopoly for fur for a total of six years, and this gave him permission from the King of France to set up a fur trading establishment in Louisiana Territory. On August 10, 1773, Pierre Laclede, Maxent, and 13-year-old August Chodeau set sail at the Mississippi River. A little side note, I always thought that Laclede and Chodeau were contemporaries, you know, the same age. I didn't really ever realize that Chodeau was only 13 years old when they sent him up the river to help found a town. That's not really mentioned in your fourth grade Missouri history class. Um, so on the trip, they took five plank boats loaded with cargo and supplies to establish a new trading post. Each boat had a skipper and about 20 men to row and defend the group. Altogether, the trip would take about three months. But the Mississippi is not easy to navigate. There's numerous islands and sandbars. There's rapid undercurrents that slow down travel. There's channels that can easily lead you astray up an entirely different river. Uh, mudslides from the bank could capsize boats. 
There's a variety of depths, so you could be sailing along at pretty smooth speed and then hit more of a shallow channel and kind of just slow down the whole trip. Um, there's also the potential of Native American attacks. And not to mention, they started their journey in August. And if you have ever been in St. Louis in August, it is miserable. It is very hot and humid. And so this weather definitely slowed down their travel because they could only travel during the cooler parts of the day. In total, they spent 83 days on the river. The group finally set ashore on November 3, 1763 at St. Genevieve. Their time here was short. Um, Laclede didn't find any buildings that he found suitable to house his cargo, and he also thought the area was just too prone for flooding and didn't want to make a settlement anywhere near this town. So as luck would have it, the commander of a nearby fort contacted Laclede about using his fort for storage. So it's Fort de Chartes, and that's located over in the Illinois side near the current town of Prairie de Rocher. Um, they were able to find temporary storage in the fort's garrison, and here it would be guarded by soldiers. So the fort commander was rather generous at this time to Maxent and Laclede. It was probably for kind of selfish reasons, so he could use the new settlement as retreat for when the British arrived um, and possibly earn some money in the fur trading company. In the nearby town of Nouvelle Chartes, Laclede purchased a homestead. So for $75, he bought a house, a barn, and a well. And this area would serve as a temporary office for the company and provide lodging during the winter. In December of 1763, Laclede and Shoto traveled up the river in a canoe looking for the site of their new fur trading post. They traveled to the confluence of the Missouri and Mississippi rivers, but there's just something about that site that Lickley didn't like, so they traveled a little bit further south to where they found, quote, an impressive landmark described as a two-mile-long stretch of limestone ledge perched high above the Mississippi and rising 32 feet or higher with a large earthen mound that beckoned them ashore, unquote. The higher bluff area was less likely to flood, and there's plenty of timber for building and a lot of fresh springs for water. Also on this site was a set of prehistoric footprints etched in the limestone at the riverbank. This could have also been seen as a sign to the men that this is where they were supposed to build. Very few St. Louisans today have seen these footprints. Um, at some point in 1814 to 1819, a local religious leader of the Harmonist movement had the footprints removed. He believed them to be the footprints of St. Gabriel, so the footprints were cut out of the limestone and transferred to the Religious Sects Center in Harmony, Indiana. Um, they're currently on private property and access to them is very prohibited. So this is the site that Laclede chose to claim the land for his new fur trading post. Prior to building anything, Laclede and Shoto met with the local Osage tribes and obtained permission to establish a settlement. Laclede knew that without doing this, their settlement was bound to fail. He was also in a hurry to build because he didn't want his cargo and merchandise left at Fort de Charches to still be there when the British invaded. Um, so they returned to Nouvelle Charches for the winter to prepare for setting up the fort. They gathered supplies, developed a work crew, and recruited potential residents. So on either February 15th or February 14th, 1764 began. The date is debatable because in Laclede's journal, it's very hard to tell if he wrote a 15 or a 14, 
but most St. Louis historians go with the 14th. Shoto and the work crew began clearing trees and constructing a warehouse. And the geography of the land is not like what we're used to seeing down at the riverfront, where it's gently sloping hills down to the river. This time it consisted of 24 large earthen mounds created by prehistoric inhabitants, and they ranged in size from small hills to almost 50 foot tall. And there's also a lot of prairie land mixed with groves of trees. There were sinkholes all over the land. And there's a series of limestone cliffs that separated the area from the river. It was not easy work for them. At this time, Laclede left Shoto in charge and returned to Nouvelle to conduct trade and to recruit residents. In April of that year, Laclede returned and named the settlement after St. Louis. Once King of France, Louis XIX was also a canonized saint. Prior to leaving, Laclede had left the plan for the city with Shoto. And his plan was based on a grid street system similar to New Orleans. There was 49 city blocks that were each 240 feet by 300 feet. There was three main avenues running parallel to the Mississippi River, Main Street or First Street, Church Street or Second Street, and then Barn Street or Third Street. And then crossing these main streets were shorter streets that were about 30 feet wide. There were three 100 by 100 foot squares that were to be used for commerce, markets, church, and cemeteries. Behind this were fields assigned to residents for farming. Most residents had a vegetable garden on their plot, so the fields would be used for large crops like corn, wheat, tobacco, cotton, oats, things like that. And then behind these fields were a number of prairies used as commons, and they were large plots of lands for residents livestock, foraging, game hunting, and a source of firewood. In general, the prairie lands began at 5th Street, which is today's Broadway, and extended about 8 miles west, north, and south of the city. The use of the term prairie in this instance is somewhat different than our modern-day terminology. The French term sur la prairie, meaning the common fields, lends itself to the use of the phrase prairie at this time, so it's not necessarily large plots of land with tall grasses, as we might imagine. It's actually a variety of land types, so there's small groves of trees, heavily wooded areas, swamps, and grassy expansions. The French term prairie refers to more cultivated, but still somewhat wild land. Actual true prairies lay south and west of the settlement, so a distinction should be made between the term prairie, and in this case, prairies all naturel. There was at least six named prairies during the city's early years. The first prairie was Prairie to St. Louis, and it was nearest to the village, and it actually disappeared pretty quickly as it was cultivated by residents. The second prairie, La Petite Prairie, which is occupied today by Union Station, this area was part of the large commons for the village and had many springs and groves of trees. The third prairie, La Grande Prairie, as the name suggests, was the largest. It was located in the north-central part of today's city. Prairie du Nord was current-day Tower Grove and Missouri Botanical Gardens, and this was subdivided into common fields and lots of land. Prairie Catalan was in the Crondelet area south of the settlement, and it was very heavily wooded. And then the last prairie that we know about was Prairie Cul-de-Sac, which was the smallest and most wooded. It lay east of Forest Park and was used mainly as common fields. 
and actually a section of untouched natural prairie still remains in St. Louis, amongst the graves of famous St. Louisans on the edge of Calvary Cemetery is a plot of prairie. The land was never used for cemetery purposes, and buildings or structures have never been constructed on this site. The land was originally owned by the Clay family, who later sold it to the St. Louis Archdiocese to expand the cemetery during the cholera epidemic of 1849. The Clay family never farmed or plowed the field, they only used it for their grazing of animals. So there's roughly about 20 acres of virgin natural prairie, and they're now maintained by the Missouri Department of Conservation. Um, land allotment outside the town consisted of various tracts of land. The amount of land you were granted to farm depended on the size of the plots you were given in town. So the bigger the house and property you had in town, the more farmland you had on the outskirts. Um, and over time, these began to be referred to by the people who owned them. Um, an example of that would be the Soulard area. At some point, Antoine Soulard owned and farmed the land that we now know as Soulard. And oftentimes, when the city needed to expand in a particular direction to accommodate new buildings or housing, the owners of this land would cede or sell the land back to the city. And so that's how we got a few names of different neighborhoods throughout the area. And the Clay granted land for housing for free on the condition that it could be improved in a period of one year. So they had to build a residence, and it could be a stone house, cabin, hut, anything of that. And they also had to enclose their property with a fence of seven-foot-tall stakes. And this was mainly for protections from attacks from the British or possibly Native Americans. And the Glade's own house was made of stone and measured 23 by 60 feet. It had a two-foot thick stone wall that was 10-foot high all around the property. And it's said to be elegantly furnished and contained an impressive library of his personal collection. Um, and this house would not only serve as the Glade's residence, but it's also the first government offices for the fur trading post. Within the first couple years of the establishment of the fur trading post, there were several waves of population growth. So obviously the first wave is going to be Shoto and the construction crew. And the second wave was settlers from the area around Fort Chartes. Um, they arrived in June of 1764 when the fort was formally evacuated. The Louisiana Territory governor recalled troops away to, as a way to save money. And normally the citizens would stay and take on the fort. However, since Maxent had that trade monopoly, there really wasn't much of an economy except for fur trading on the other side of the river. And word was getting out that the Illinois country now belonged to Great Britain. And conditions for the French Creole were deteriorating. So politically, economically, relationships with the Native Americans, everything was not going great. And the French had been able to establish good, respectful relationships with local Native American tribes, but not so much the case with the British. So there's multiple factors that led French to migrate across the river to St. Louis at this time. And the third wave was Madame Marie Chaudot and her family. They arrived in 1768, and she was actually the first white woman to settle in this area. And by her being there, it kind of opened up immigration for other families to join. So her presence there let other women know that, okay, this is more than just a fur trading post. This is going to turn into a village or a town, and it's safe for my family to be here. Laclede gave her a stone house, a farm, and four slaves. 
Madame Shoto would actually become quite the leader in her own accord in St. Louis, owning quite a bit of property and becoming a wealthy person. The fifth wave was in the fall of 1765, and this was the result of the official surrender of Fort de Chartres to the British. At this time, the captain of the fort, Captain Saint-Ange de Belrive, arrived with the remaining soldiers from the fort. Saint-Ange de Belrive was a very skilled diplomat with the Native Americans, and he became the chief military leader in the Upper Louisiana Territory. So at this time, he formed a very small militia within the village. It consisted of a dozen or so men. And then the fifth wave was another group of French Creoles migrating from the east side of the Mississippi over to the West Bank. So between this time, St. Louis had about 800 to 1,200 inhabitants, and it consisted of fur traders, craftsmen, stonemasons, militiamen, blacksmiths, carpenters, women, and children. The societal aspect of the town was still developing. Um, the town was not recognized by any official government. So French officials still governed the Louisiana Territory, even though the land had been ceded to Spain. And no one really put forth much effort in exerting their power over St. Louis. And it wasn't necessarily because they didn't want to. It was just very difficult to manage a territory halfway around the world. Messages of how to rule your citizens or doctrines of the time could take months or even a year to reach their destination. And there's also no local government. So they had a free society and governed themselves. Laclede had total control of the town and its citizens at this time. So any infraction of what law there was or any disagreement between citizens would be handled in a town meeting type situation where people would vote on the final decision and outcome of the problem. Even though the official name was St. Louis, the inhabitants referred to the area as Laclede's village. The town was full of French Creoles, and their religion is Catholicism. And even though they observed the major holidays of the religion, they didn't really have a church until 1771, and there's still no uh, official priest for the area. So priests from St. Genevieve in Kaskaskia would perform baptisms and other religious ceremonies as needed, and then on a quarterly basis, they would conduct Mass. And it was not until 1772 that the first official priest came to reside in St. Louis. His name was Father Valentine. And on Christmas Day in 1774, the talisman pledged to build a new church that would be far more substantial than the current makeshift building. It was to be made of stone, measuring 30 by 60 feet, with a large entrance door, 15 total windows, a belfry, and a board floor. The priest house would be made of stone and measure 27 by 38 feet. Even though they decided on these plans in 1774, the structure wasn't completed until 1776. There seemed to be some issues in how to work the contract because it involved so many different trades and materials. So in 1776, the building was complete, and it sits on the site of our current-day old cathedral. And the fur trade at the time was a very prosperous and stable aspect of the economy. Laclede and Shoto continued to develop successful, respective relationships with the local Native American tribes, and trade flourished for both sides. At this point, Laclede had a decision to make, where to place his priorities. 
the growth and sustainability of St. Louis, are focused more on the fur trading. And there were some factors beyond the Glede's control that led him in a direction. So back in 1766, Mexican's fur trading monopoly was terminated. He was caught up in some political turmoil and imprisoned for a while. So Laclede agreed to buy out Maxent's shares of their joint company, so that's 75% of the company. And Laclede bought these out using promissory notes, and this made him cash poor. So in an attempt to save himself, Laclede deeded all of his property to August Shoto and the four children he had with Madame Shoto, and then he reduced the scope of his trade to focus more on the lower Louisiana territory, and decided to focus his energies and priorities on improving the town of growing St. Louis. So he poured his money into improvements for the town. He created a new jail. He upgraded the grist mill and the water mill that the town used. And at this time, he also still had payments to Maxent with interest for the buying out the company. So by 1777, Laclede was broke. So Maxent claimed all of Laclede's land and buildings and gave him warehouse space and supplies on credit. And this wasn't done in a malicious way. This was just seen as an old friend helping out Laclede. In the spring of 1778, Laclede made a business trip to New Orleans. On his way back home, he passed away. So on either May 27th or May 28th of 1778, Laclede died aboard a boat called Hope. He was 45 years old, and he died near Fort Arkansas. The boat captain buried him in the garrison's graveyard. And no one is quite sure of his exact location of his grave. There is a gravestone marker in Sculler Cemetery in Post, Arkansas, but that's almost certainly not the actual grave. And sources say that Laclede had been ill for quite some time, but there's no details on the condition that he had. So after his death, Maxent and Shoto attempted to settle the affairs. And they were a disaster. Laclede kept separate books for the sake of Maxent, and a separate book for the Louisiana Territory Governor, and another set of books for the actual cash flow of the company. And he owed money to essentially everyone. Obviously, Maxent for his portion of the company. He owed money to St. Louis merchants and even private citizens. So to clarify the situation and move on, August Shoto bought the water mill and completely rebuilt Laclede's house. He added another story to it. There was walnut floors and inside the house was a library consisting of over 500 volumes. And then Madame Shoto bought what was left of the estate and was able to pay off Maxent. Maxent and Shoto formed their own company titled the House of Shoto, and this would be a fur trading company. At some point, Maxent returned to New Orleans and passed away in 1794. In the 1790s, the town of St. Louis flourished, and it became a parent city to new settlements in the area that included St. Charles, Portage de Sioux, Florissant, St. Ferdinand, and Crondelet. The population grew and continued to increase as French Creoles left the Illinois Territory, and St. Louis became a significant fur trading post and city. It was also during this time that Maxent and Laclede began creating marriage arrangements for the Shoto children that would begin building the 
elite society of St. Louis. And let's draw back a little bit from our small world in the Louisiana Territory and take a look at the bigger picture. So in 1783, the Revolutionary War ended. So the British were no longer in control of Illinois country. The newly formed United States of America controlled the territory. But to the French Creoles in Louisiana Tory, this didn't really make a big difference. Many of the new Americans were British subjects and had learned their attitude and treatment towards Native Americans from the British. This caused fear in St. Louisans that Americans would expand the territory into St. Louis and destroy what really made St. Louis work. So Laclede, Shoto, and Maxent worked very hard to establish respectful relationships with the Native American tribes. They adopted aspects of their culture. They allowed Native Americans to reside in their town without any conditions. Essentially, they didn't try to anglicize them. And I'm not saying they're perfect, but they made an attempt. The British and the Americans saw Native Americans as a barbaric nuisance and wanted to eradicate them. And also in St. Louis at this time, women played a significant role in the economy and society of the town. Their life and rights were much more free and liberal than those of women in the American colonies. St. Louis women were allowed to own property in their own right, which led them to having power and say over their money. And while men were away on hunting expeditions, Women ran their household, they planted and harvested crops, they took part in business transactions. They basically ran the town while the men were away. And they were also educated. Even though there's no formal schools for women at this time, St. Louis consisted of a mainly upper wealthy class that placed a value on reading and education. And amongst the residents, the town had a staggering number of books Many residents would open up reading rooms in their house to share their books with fellow citizens, and there was no ban on who could read what books. So the women at this time were very enlightened compared to the colonial American women. And St. Louisans feared the transfer of power to a new government because they thought it would threaten all their ways of life and things that they were accustomed to. In 1787, the Northwest Ordinance divided Ohio and Illinois territories into political areas in preparation for statehood. So this included current-day Ohio, Illinois, Indiana, Minnesota, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And these territories were going to be directly administered by the U.S. Congress. And with control of the territory in the hands of the Americans, many French migrated to St. Louis to spur on growth of the area. Some notable people that migrated during this time were Antoine Soulard. He was a land surveyor, and many of his notes and maps exist today. And Charles Gratchett, he was a successful fur trader and merchant. In October of 1800, Spain secretly transferred the Louisiana Territory back to France, who was ruled by Napoleon Bonaparte. Um, this was done in the Third Treaty of San Ildefenso. Spain thought the land to be unprofitable and gave it to Napoleon on the condition that if he sold it, Spain would have first claim. France and Spain had been allies, but the execution of Louis XVI in 1793 changed all this. Spain joined other European nations in the War of Coalition, originally against the Kingdom of France and then against the Republic of France. In 1796, the countries joined forces again to fight a war against the British. 
But this did not go well for Spain, as they lost territory and respect as a worldwide power. They needed money, and their ownership of the Louisiana Territory was only part of their total land claims in North America, and protecting this area from potential American settlers was proving more costly than profitable. And Napoleon was building an empire and wanted land. So in October of 1802, Spain officially transferred the Louisiana Territory to France, although the Spanish remained in control of this territory for quite some time. Spain refused access to the territory to any American merchants or traders, and just to note, this included prohibiting Lewis and Clark from exploring the area. On April 30th, 1803, France sold the land to America. Napoleon was in need of funds to further his campaigns in Europe, and President Jefferson was eager to gain control of land west of the Mississippi. In exchange for $15 million, the U.S. acquired 828,000 square miles of land. This transaction nearly doubled the land size of America. The land of Upper Louisiana was transferred ownership in a ceremony referred to as Three Flags Day. On March 9, 1804, Spanish Lieutenant Governor Delassus surrendered Upper Louisiana Territory to Amos Stoddard. Amos Stoddard was acting as a representative for France. He was a member of the U.S. Army and commandant of the military district of Upper Louisiana. The next day, May 10, 1804, Amos Stoddard signed documents transferring the territory to the USA. The U.S. separated the territory into north and south areas at the 33rd parallel. St. Louis became the capital of the new American territory west of the Mississippi and was referred to as the Gateway to the West. And that's where we'll stop on today's story. Next time, I'll cover Colonial St. Louis and its transition from independent French Creole city to living under the new American government. Thank you for joining me today, and until next time, I'll see you in the loo.